Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. Today, we dive into kind of research and what it's like uh, in our field, in our sport, what the research is like for products. Uh, Fabrice comes on, talks to us. He is a PhD candidate at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, and he is going to be a professor at Michigan State coming up next year. So he has a ton of experience in clinical research and he kind of breaks down the truth about a lot of this research uh, and how a lot of it really isn't up to snuff. So I do lose internet uh, for some of it. So thankfully Nick was recording this, but they get into a good discussion. I missed some of it. <clears throat> so I hope you enjoy it. I'm just gonna roll into it. All right, as promised, we are here with our guest, Fabrice Mowbray. And I think I said that without damaging it too much. Absolutely. Okay, so um, at this point now, we just got to hear about all the... So right now, you probably don't know this because you're you, we're having you on first, but we said a lot of good stuff about you on the intro. Um, and now we're going to cut to your segment. So um, now most of our listeners know that you're the real deal. Um, you're on board to kind of help us understand a lot of products, um, the science, the research, the studies, flaws that might be in the system. Um, and this is all about stuff that we spend money on as triathletes or endurance athletes. So Garrick, a lot any, of money on absolutely. Oh yeah. Tons of money. Garrick, any, any further things to add before we just hand over the old floor? Um, well, I'd like to say that Fabrice is from a great area of not only country, but, but the world, lots of, uh, quality <laughs> people have come from that region. Southwest okay. community. So what, are you, what are you really saying here? This is uh, going to be the, the best scenario. You guys are going to be bonded for life. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's good to have someone on the podcast who has looked at the research and is kind of just like, I don't know about this guys, yeah. uh, because a lot of it is pretty much marketing. Like we, we come from a niche sport and with that, it's like, essentially niche research that's been done um if anything it's like pilot studies that we tend to generate a lot from <clears throat> and i think we have noticed that so i'm excited to hear what fabrice has to it's say like it's basically like hey you guys have a bullshit product okay well if you want to recoup at least four million you got to invest 20 million in marketing just because you've got to overkill it and make sure that you're going to get some some back mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's anyways. definitely a lot of marketing for sure Go ahead, talk. Sorry, we'll just keep going. Well, what's happening? How'd you hear about us? Why? No, I, uh, podcast? I've been listening to you guys since probably about a year ago, not even a year, six months ago. I found this podcast and started catching up with it. And that's when I kind of reached out to you guys. Um, about myself, I'm a, I, a couple of things I'm not, and I want to be open and honest about that as a scientist. So I'm not an exercise physiologist. I am not an experienced triathlete. I've only been doing triathlon for about the last year. But that's really what kind of brought me onto this topic was that I was going through a lot of this research and seeing from a methodological perspective and from my own background, which I'll get into a little bit, how weak a lot of the research was. And I am not here to be a negative Nelly. I'm not here to rip people. I'm really here to help racers and athletes kind of get an idea and a gist of what to kind of look at with the research and to not take it so seriously, especially in the endurance domain. So uh, my background is uh, I was a registered nurse in Detroit at a big health system, a level one trauma center. I worked uh, in the ICU. I worked in the eMERGE for about eight years. Oh, um, man. Respect. My mom was same in Flint ER when I was growing up. I always heard the story. So that's a tough job you had to do. Yeah. You know what? You love it, though. Like you, uh, I got to say, so for where, where Garen and I are from, you know, we got a lot of smaller community hospitals. Nothing against that. But if you want level one trauma and you want to get your hands dirty and your adrenaline junkie, Detroit's where you really have to go. And you got to cross that bridge every day. And that's why triathlon is up your alley. Yeah, you got it. So, uh, <laughs> absolutely. So I, um, I got a master's in science and nursing, and then, uh, I'm finishing up now a PhD in health research methodology. 
So in a fancy term, that is um, a PhD that teaches and educates people on how to determine what research is valid, what research is reliable, and what research can we as, um, I'm more of a clinical domain, so I do clinical research, clinical trials. Um, so for me, I usually do um, general, like for my research, I do emergency department care. So I'm currently looking at how do we improve the emergency department for older adults? And I, uh, a lot of my research involves like building machine learning algorithms and building prediction modeling and such. I'm also involved with a lot of clinical trials right now. Um, so yeah, at a high level, I'm a methodologist, um, finishing my PhD still, I got about four months left. So I'm excited about that. That's great, congrats. No, I'm excited. I got a defense still. So, but uh, in that time, I've put out a couple pubs and I've been uh, excited to do this research and move on. And I'm just starting a professorship at Michigan State uh, in January of next year. So I'm really excited to be uh, getting involved there as well. A big research center as well. Yeah, that's um, one of the most professional resumes we've had in quite a long time. Um, so thank you for being here and shedding the smartness to us. Uh, Garrett, were you going to say something? I cut you off. Uh, you look like you were going to say something over there, did you? No, but, um, you know, since you're praising his academic accolades, I'd like to say that um, I have a master's in oh, science, in, of science in orthotics and prosthetics. That's so, awesome, man. But so many teachers told me I was not going to do it. So it happened. Um, but we have one course on research. It was, a, it was a course-based master's. And something that we do see in our profession that we also see um, in sports, especially in triathlon, like I said earlier, like niche based for us, it's, it's a niche market in prosthetics. And we do have to, I mean, for sure you've heard the term evidence-based practice. Absolutely. But, from McMaster, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so they love to throw that around. Um, but really it's like, what is it? And in, in our field, we, we say evidence-based practice, but all our studies are kind of similar to in the triathlon, they are small populations. We have small sample sizes and it is a lot of marketing because we're putting components on people and they want us to buy their components. And it's more so just justification for putting it on. And it's like, how do we spin it? Um, so I'm interested to see how you feel about that and um, kind of from my experience, how it's going to tie in together. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm hopeful for any experiences you have. Uh, you come with a good background too. So um, before I get into this though, um, anything I say, I don't want to paint too broad of a stroke here because I'm sure there are a lot of strong endurance researchers. I'm sure there's a lot of strong research that I haven't seen, or I, I have come across a lot of it actually, but the vast majority, when I speak here, I speak in generalizations because I can only speak to the, the, mo the majority of what I've seen. And the majority of what I've seen is data is research that wouldn't even be published in clinical journals, truly. Um, and today we're going to talk about a couple things that I see that are just struggles in general with endurance research. Some of these struggles are also in clinical and health research, absolutely. Um, but there are some there are some factors of validity that are just they need a little more work in endurance sports. And the first one I have to say is sample sizes. So I'm sure you guys have done you've seen the studies, and you know we see a big hype of a study, and there's like 15 participants in it. And that's actually quite an issue. Um, a lot of people wouldn't, who don't have a, a statistical background or a research methods background wouldn't think much of it, but just at the face validity of it, when you hear 15 participants or 20 participants, it's not really that impressive. Wouldn't you guys agree? I completely agree. Now, to that point, what does it actually take for a company to public, publicly state that type of uh, you know, 80% efficacy among studies? Like, what does that actually mean? Has that been backed by any um, peer-reviewed studies or is, is that exactly what you're talking about they took 15 people and you know two one and a half of them had a bad time everyone or the one one percent was good you know is that the type of thing what does it take so it's it's different for every question and so uh one thing we do in research is we do something called a power analysis and this is essentially a way that we in advance or we call it a sample size calculation we'll use statistical methods to see how many patients do we need to draw the appropriate conclusions with this data that we have. And so, for example, we may do a power analysis and find out that we need 250 patients to answer this specific research question. And the reason that really matters is you need so many event rates. And by event rates, I mean, if we're looking at an outcome, how many outcomes did we have? So when you have small data, when you have 15 or 20 participants, we get something called data fragility, methodological fragility. And what that means is that 
when one person drops out, so if we're running a clinical trial, for example, and we're looking at an intervention, it doesn't even matter what it is, but we're looking at an intervention to affect, um, you know, RPE and, and you know, like rate of perceived exertion, right? Mm-hmm. We, have seven, we have 10 people in one group, we have 10 people in the other group, and we find that 70% of people in one group had improvement in the intervention group, and 70% had intervention, had uh, improvement in the placebo group. Well, that shows there's no difference. Mm-hmm. But let's say that, and this happens all the time in clinical research, someone drops out of the study. I'm done. I don't want to be in the trial anymore. Or they say, you know what? I like that intervention and I'm going to go find a way to get it, even though I'm not in the trial. And they hear about it. That's called contamination and it's called the co intervention. So they'll go and find the intervention, even though it wasn't prescribed to them within the study. Well, if one person drops out and it's now seven out of 10 versus six out of 10, that could actually change the whole results of the study when you have such small samples. So that could make it, if you have one person that drops out or they switch groups um, in the intervention, if, if, they, if we have someone in the, in the intervention group that drops out, then it makes the intervention look worse in that scenario. Yeah. Or if we have someone in the standard practice group that drops out, it can make the intervention look better. And so that's a big issue. That's the big issue. And we will see a lot of studies, like you said, draw terms of efficacy. We found 80% efficacy, but they drew that from 15 patients. And that's really concerning because we really don't, we don't know what would have happened by chance or not by chance well, because we never gave, we never gave enough patients, or I should say not patients in this scenario, enough racers to uh, give the data a chance to ha- deal with the randomness. What is the acceptable dropout rate or percentage dropout during a study to which it can no longer be validated? So there's no real answer to that. It, it's very context specific. Um, typically, we don't like to see I say typically because it happens all the time, especially when you look at there's different types of trials. So we can do something called a mechanistic trial, which is like we want to see in the ideal situation what's going to happen in those situations. We don't want anyone dropping out. Yeah. Uh, Or we can do pragmatic trials, which is where we're looking at clinical trials in real life. We know people are going to drop out. We know this is going to happen regardless of that. We want to know if it's going to work because in real life, if we have a new intervention, we know that not everyone's going to use it fully. Not everyone's going to use it purposefully. Not everyone's going to use it as prescribed. Mm -hmm. Think about foam rolling. We're always told to foam yeah, roll and foam example. roll, right? I like, foam oh, roll on IT bands every night for 35 minutes straight each leg. <laughs> exactly, right? But you know that many people are not foam rolling like they should be, or if it's, you know what I mean? Like what effect that's going to have, right? And so that'd be an example of if we did a pragmatic trial, then we would say, okay, we know people aren't going to foam roll, but we're going to still look at them in their groups anyway, because that's real life. And that's what happens, right? We want to know if, if in a whole, is it going to make a difference? Yeah, we so, need to look at Peloton, um, you know, users after three workouts, who continues? I want to know that statistic. <laughs> exactly, right? How many people spent all that money and did like four bike sessions and we're yeah. done? And they're now like, it's collecting dust. They're like, now it's, now it's where I dry my towels after I shower. <laughs> right, so, so if we come back to the situation of fragility, now let's say we have a thousand patients and we have seven, or 2,000 patients, a thousand in one group and a thousand in the other, and we have one or two people drop out. Well, that's actually not going to have that big of an effect on the significance of the study because we have more patients. It doesn't, you know, it's not, the results aren't fragile. And so this is actually a really big issue in research. Mm. So what's really funny is you'll see in an intervention an intervention-based endurance research, or even like nutritional endurance research, they'll like boast about having 30 patients, but in clinical research, we don't even call that a, like a real trial. That's, we would classify, I'm sure Garrick knows as a feasibility or a pilot trial in that situation. Yeah. We wouldn't even... We wouldn't even try to draw uh, real uh, data on efficacy from that. In fact, the guidelines say when you have that small of a sample size, the first thing you should be looking at is feasibility. And we often do those kind of studies to see, can we give the intervention appropriately? So uh, it's really interesting to see that in this different domain of science, the same amount, the same sample size is, is taken for gold. It's where if we were in a clinical domain, we would do all kinds of methods and bootstrap and do everything we can to make sure that data is valid. But when you don't have the data, you don't have the data. And we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even really publish that in anything other than a pilot trial in the clinical research. Yeah. It seems like companies are not very transparent about that in terms of, I mean, sometimes you do hear it too, where they're like, uh, out of five people, it's very small sample sizes even being advertised now. So it's just the American or the typical consumer is just like glazed over the fact of any relevance of sample size, population depth or density. And we're just like, well, I guess, Four people were safe out of a hundred. So we're good. It's great. So, yeah. And it's interesting though, like as I, as I'm coming to this, I'm coming into endurance sports from a non 
like I'm a new triathlete. So when I look at this stuff, I'm looking at it as like with a fresh set of eyes and really more of a methodological stance. And it just, it kind of took me off of it. Like I was like, you have, uh, and I'll give an example. Um, so yes. there's I'll, the example I'll give is, and I won't name any company names or anything for obvious reasons, but there's a new company promoting a bicarbonate lotion. Hmm. And I'm just like blown away at the statements that they make. They have like two studies with one with 20 participants, one with six. Uh, there was another study I found that they don't even boast about that found insignificance. Um, cool. And it's interesting because they make big claims. They're hyping that, you know, it reduces soreness and we can improve your power on the bike. But we have 20, maybe 30 patients in total to do this. So like we talk about, you know, estimate fragility, like that's a big deal there. Like there's what happens in those situations where someone drops out or how, and you know, it's interesting because usually we don't have enough power, which means we don't have enough data to kind of draw those inferences um, and these scenarios, they did, they drew these inferences. They may have had the appropriate statistical conduction and stuff like that, but it's just, it's amazing to see the claims that they will make from a marketing perspective. And it's truly marketing. It's very marketing heavy. Right. And so these are big claims of any real data to support it. And it have like a lot of science depth to it, either every claim in, in terms of, you know, whatever you made some notes or on the soreness or the power numbers increasing or feeling more fresh or less lactic acid buildup. So where's that actually coming from? Right. So even if you, uh, I'll be cautious in the language I use here, but even the stuff that they promote is like a poster board or like one was like a poster board. One's like a report on the website. And I'm like trying to find like real clinical trials that were published in, you know, big journals. And I, I really can't find this. And the one thing we're taught as a scientist is to be very cautious in your language because things change, evidence changes. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to me, it's interesting for me, and I'm coming from a naive perspective here to see like it's marketing. It's very, it's very marketing heavy here to make big claims that like, we can reduce your soreness and think about how many people have bought this product. I know many, many people that have bought this product and it's not a cheap product. They gave so, me a bunch of it for free and I thought it was okay. I mean, I didn't hate it. It just made my clothes all dirty because of that bicarbonate just sticks to everything it just can't, can't put a red light in the, or a black light in my closet after i put that lotion on <laughs> right and so like and another issue i have is that if you look at the sample that they collected this is not a group of age groupers <laughs> this is not very generalizable to the average triathlete rather this is like six elite cyclists 20 elite triathletes right like the best of the best and you'll see this a lot in cycling too like i was watching a youtube video and it was uh, a company promoting their wheel at 50 kilometers per hour, we can reduce 2% of, of your, you know, wattage. Well, I hear you, but who's, who's really cycling as an age group or even a true professional at that speed for a long distance of time? Just It's not really generalizable to who's buying the product. And that's another thing you'll see is that a lot of these studies will, they'll get the best of the best or, and they're not really trying to generalize to the real consumer here, which is age groupers. That's the biggest part of the sport. So this is example number one. It's a good one. And it's uh, some of these companies, even like specifically the bicarbonate lotions, it does seem like the companies have really faded away in terms of marketing um, um, aggressiveness over the last two years. I mean, initially, I remember seeing this stuff everywhere. Um, and I feel like now that support is maybe less or maybe the product really wasn't actually received. So no matter what, they're kind of working their way out of the industry. I don't know. And the thing is, I'm not, I'm not very confident in what I say here because I'm new to this domain, but I, from what I've read, like oral, um, oral bicarb does a good job here, but what the data shows on topical bicarb is very iffy is the word I'll use gimmicky. Okay. Yeah. And that cool. there's probably a lot going on there that could, and I really don't know much about the oral bicarb. So I don't speak confidently about that myself. Okay. We could, you know, just like talking about it, there just because there's not a lot on it doesn't mean it doesn't work it's that we're not very true sure if it works because it is preliminary like we need more research into it to find out if it does work so a lot of triathletes like we're desperate to get faster right so anything that's like well this might work then you're essentially doing your own case report on yourself and seeing does it help does it help me if it helps me half a percent, you know, sometimes that's something I'm willing to spend money on, which generally doesn't even show in the data. Yeah. Um, no matter how effective it is, you know, in the pilot or in 
say we eventually get to the point where we're doing a systematic review on on this on these products because we have hundreds of studies uh like a 0.5 percent is not going to show but it'll show in my race and it'll probably get me ahead of the next guy so and you know what you brought up a really good point garrick that just because the data is iffy doesn't mean there's not biological or theoretical like theoretical plausibility that this would work right it's just you got to watch the claims you make and that's my big point here is that yeah. you know when we have sample sizes of 20 people you can't draw huge conclusions and what i'm seeing in endurance racing sport uh, endurance racing research and this is actually common across all research is that we don't have a lot of replication happening i'm sure you've seen this garrick we might only get one or two studies on a topic and it's like well we need further research but it never comes and that's a big concern across not just endurance racing research, but across all research, clinical research, psychological research, every type of domain of research, we struggle with replication. So the yeah. studies in general just seem to be a little misleading, much like every marketing technique that's out there at the grocery store or anything. So just buyer beware when it sounds too good to be true or, but I mean, ultimately, if you buy something once and try it, um, you know, there's no shame there and seeing if it works, you can do like Garrick said, your own study. But I do agree. Um, I would love to see the point of putting a study out there that really contains no validity outside of, hey, we did a study and that's about it. Yeah, and it's interesting because we're talking about sample sizes. One thing that researchers will do with sample sizes is like our next topic is called composite outcomes. And so um, a composite outcome is a way that they'll handle having a low sample size or a low event rate. So you may not, you may have a very rare disease, for example, let's use hemophilia, a very rare disease. So to find people with hemophilia, just to find even, you know, a thousand people to get in your study, that is in that sense novel because we, it's very hard to recruit those patients, but the event rate, the amount of people that have an outcome, and that's what really drives statistics is not how many people do you have in your study, mm -hmm. how many people of those have an outcome. And that might be very low. So this is not only for low sample sizes, but a lot of times researchers release something called composite outcomes where they lump outcomes together. And this is a way to kind of say, you know, let's say, for example, we're looking at um, any commercial. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Absolutely. But like, uh, you know, the, like for example, we could look at racer speed, uh, decreased CRP. So CRP is a measure of inflammation and improved A1C value. So does your blood sugar, how are your blood sugar gonna do with this intervention? Whatever the intervention may be, and those are very broad and random. But of those three, what do you think is really gonna matter there to the researcher or to the, to the racer, I should say? What's racer important? The racer is not gonna care. No, definitely not inflammation. They ain't <laughs> gonna care about the inflammation. And honestly, they may care, like maybe the elites might care about their A1C value, but no age group is going to care about their A1C value. Hey, and so, I got to stop you there. I coach a bunch of athletes who we look at blood tests every six months and we care about those things, but you know, you, but that's an example of, I don't have the context, right? Yep. So, so that's, that's, there's more, there's more smarter folks out there getting smarter because of some of this marketing too. So absolutely. I think, I think but the, po good. the point of the three though, is that of those three, who, what are you going to care more about your race speed? That's the most racer important. So if we clump CRP and we clump A1C with race speed and we say we had 40 events, well, what drove those events? Was it the A1C or was yeah. it the CRP or was it what we actually care about in this and for most age groupers, which is race speed. And so when you see composite outcomes, I always say I give caution to, make, to look at a couple things. Do the, do the outcomes that are bunched together, do they make sense? And so you'll see, I'll give a clinical example. So I do emergency department research. And we'll look at, you know, we can, let's say for some reason we can't get enough events in, in, or we can't get enough. We have a lot of patients, but not a lot of events. Let's say the event is death, right? Not a lot of people die in the emerge. That's a fact. So we're going to clump together emergency department visits and hospital admissions with death. Well, those are like death is totally different than coming back to the emerge, especially in the way a patient views that, right? Just like racing speed is very different than how they're going to view to CRP. And so it's really important when you see composite outcomes to say, do these outcomes make sense? Did, we, did they bunch the right outcomes together? And um, if they did, did they report those statistics separately? So sometimes you'll see we gave a composite outcome because we needed the statistical power. But we also told you what the death rate was, what the hospital admission rate was, what the ED visit rate was. So that's something to really look forward to, Specific. to look for when you're looking at composite outcomes is did they give only the composite outcome? Or do they actually give you the results of all the outcomes separately? It and that's typically like, what we should do. It seems like that should just be illegal because that's blatantly lying. You know, what, like how, not, 
you can have 20 events and none of them even pertain to what you're specifically saying, but it's the fact that they were there is worth noting and you can use that to your advantage to sell something or right. report and, on something. Yeah, and so uh, and sometimes causes and outcomes make sense. So if we're looking at stroke patients, we might look at those who had a heart attack after stroke and those who had another stroke and those who died. Well, those are three very close, very patient important outcomes because they're all going to impact your life very heavily. But if I throw in repeat ED visits there, like, did you come back to the emergency department? You're not going to care about that if you have, as much as if you had a stroke or if you had a heart attack, right? Yeah. It doesn't so, make sense to throw it in there. So there was a couple of drug commercials I've seen. And I think a couple of them even maybe have like actually said few patients reported fewer doctor visits or something like that, which was obviously a, you know, bunched or composite outcome because you could not go to the doctor less because you had three less broken something that year. Sorry, you cut out there for me for a second. What? Oh, gosh. What part did you hear? Uh, I knew you were talking about composite outcomes, and I got lost for a sec there. Well, don't worry about it. It's probably nonsense. Uh, but, but I do have a very important question, and this is serious. Did you call it the eMERGE, and is that acceptable to other doctors, nurses, and eMERGE people? That's actually interesting. So it's wherever you work is like a different language. So like if you're in... If you're in the United Kingdom, for example, uh, they'll call it the accident emergency department. Well, that's a Canadian thing. I think a lot of Canadians call it the eMERGE. Uh, I don't I don't know if I've heard that outside of the Canadian context, to be honest. The emerge. Yeah, we call it eMERGE or ER in the States. It's all ED. That's true. Yep. So and, and so when I do research, I'll call it the emergency department because that's like everyone knows the emergency department. Right. But yeah, eMERGE is like a very Canadian slang. I'm glad you called me on that. No, no, I didn't call you. I just wanted clarification. This eMERGE <laughs> All right. So bottom line, um, outcome reporting is also a way to falsify or also, I don't know, make your research sound more specific, even though it's also ambiguous. They give it the statistical power, like sometimes, and sometimes we need to do composite outcomes, like I said, so, or sometimes we, we don't put composite outcomes together, not per, like it's not purposeful or deceitful, but maybe it just wasn't well thought out. And so it, it's hard for the reader or the consumer who's trying to make a decision there and it's not really our job as consumers to decide, is this a strong composite outcome or not? That should really be that the research shade that's happening. But I mean, you can really look at something for face validity and see like these three things that were put together really don't make sense. And so, if they don't, did they report them separately? That's really what we gotta be looking at. As a regular person out there in the world, moving through all the marketing and all the studies and all the pharmaceuticals, what is a good way for or a couple tips people can, or a couple key words even that people can look for or listen for to identify the things we've you've kind of put out for us like how can we look a little further like well this kind of sounds like a composite outcome I, I want to know why yeah anytime you see that they report more than one outcome together so any outcome that's reported with something else so if they report um, improved race speed and improved wattage together that actually makes sense that's a great composite outcome because those are two things that people really care about right but, and they make, it makes theoretical sense to put those together. So always look, if the word composite is there, that's typically the terminology they'll use um, or collective endpoint. Okay. Um, if you hear those terminology, that's a good thing to look for. But at the end of the day, it's once you're reading an abstract, which isn't, a lot of people really don't do that, right? Like a lot of consumers are just taking, taking word and face validity, right? It's not really expected of them to do that. So that's something you would look for is like terminology as like collective outcomes, composite outcomes. And even if they don't term it that way, if they bunched outcomes together and you're not looking at one specific outcome, that's considered a composite outcome. So I need to look deeper and Garrick, you got to back me on this. We got to look deeper into some of these Watts savings, pulleys and chains and bottom brackets and other bearing situations that are claiming crazy erroneous Watts saved. Yeah. I always take it with a grain of salt. I always say, well, it's probably faster, especially when it comes down to like, physics and engineering i'm like it's probably theoretically faster <laughs> probably theoretically <laughs> um, yeah yeah i hear you man yeah and like even sometimes with like i guess we'd say like metabolic stuff theoretically like there's a pathway where it should work and should help but it's like how much does it actually help uh so sometimes i just i don't know take it all with a grain of salt and it also depends how much money I have at the time. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because that leads into our next topic of surrogate markers. So are we looking at 
the actual outcome? Or are we looking at something that's a substitute for that outcome? And so I'm sure you both have seen this where, and we actually do this in clinical research all the time. There's nothing wrong with using a surrogate outcome if we can't get, so I'll be specific here. A surrogate outcome is when we use like a specific lab value or a specific measure as a substitute for data that we really are trying to estimate. So for example, um, in I, let's go back to blood sugar. So in diabetic patients as physicians, uh, you know, physicians, and I'm a nurse, right, we'll use something called the hemoglobin A1C, which tells you what does your blood sugar look like over three months? And it looks at the red blood cells and it does it in ways that are beyond my scope. But we do this because would it be practical to have a patient or even a research participant come back and get their sugar checked every day and get their sugar checked after meals, right? Like that's just not pragmatic. So we often do surrogate markers when there are times when we just, it's not pragmatic to have the real endpoint. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we need to make sure is that are these surrogate markers, does it make sense? So for example, we know that A1C is a good surrogate marker of long of lasting um, blood uh, insulin and blood control or blood sugar control, right? It makes sense to use A1C. Um, and so what I find in a lot of endurance research, and actually it's not just endurance research, all a lot of research, including clinical research, um, we often will use surrogate markers that are convenient to us. It's what can we get that's convenient. Um, and so as people who are looking at surrogate markers, um, I would just say like, you know, if we're looking at a specific lab value, like they're using lactate, does lactate really correlate with the outcome we're trying to look at, right? Oftentimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, right? Does lactate really make sense to look at here? So I always tell people to think about, is the surrogate marker theoretically or biologically plausible? Does it make sense? Is it something that's going to, does it have face validity? If you just look at it, just as from a racing perspective, does that yeah, make sense? Commonsensical, yeah. Exactly, commonsensical, I like it. So, um, and oftentimes we use surrogate markers instead of racer important outcomes. And so in, in the clinical world, we'll call them patient important outcomes. So patient important outcomes are things that we care about as patients. And that's the same thing in racing. There's certain things that we care about as racers. Can I get faster? Can I feel better? Can I recover better, right? Um, and so like RPE, race time, can I build more muscle? These are all example, examples of racer important outcomes. But sometimes we have to use lab values to try to estimate these. Uh, and lactate's a good example of that. So I would just say, you know, don't, nothing wrong with using composite outcomes, nothing wrong with using surrogate markers. Just make sure that if we're using them, they have some good face validity. And as a racer, you typically will know this. I'm sure Nicholas and, and Garrick, as you're looking at, um, a study you, as a racer, you know what you're what you care about and what's important to look at here, and so that's what I always kind of just say is is there face validity to this? Yeah, does it really just seem like it makes sense? And obviously, if a company is promoting something in this day and age, unless it's sometimes on the off Instagram ad that I click on, um, they usually have some of that face value and common sense of like, well, yeah, it makes sense. This wheel, um, if you know anything about aerodynamics at all, this wheel does look like it's faster to the air or whatever. So I think they get to that point based off of at least tying into those outcomes that we really crave. Um, but I think aerodynamics is another big one in a sport, which is just crazy rampant with massive speculation um, in scenarios that are probably one in a hundred uh, per you know month <laughs> to even happen. But they'll zone in on that exact specific you know, point because it looks good and sounds good for marketing, right? Yeah. Yeah, so. exactly it. So all those, I think your next topic is variables um, in, you know, don't drive into that. And can you tie it to aerodynamics at all? Uh, yeah. So um, for example, yeah, if we want to go the aerodynamic route, like one thing we really need to look at is uh, do we adjust for or control for the variables that really matter? So if we're looking at um, aerodynamics, we know that um, wind factor is going to make a difference. Help me out here, guys. What else is going to affect aerodynamics? Positioning, right? Nope. I, uh, we, we're not, we're triathletes. We're not mathletes. <laughs> but like things are going to affect <laughs> your aerodynamics, no, right? Exactly. The direct, direction of the wind, strength of the wind, you know, if it's turbulent wind, if you've got a tire that sticks over your carbon rim or it's deeper into the rim, um, you know, your spokes, the turbulent, right. how many spokes, spacing of the spokes, the width. So if we're going to look at an outcome, yeah, I could go like on there's so way. many, right? <laughs> so if we're going to look at an outcome, like does it improve aerodynamics? Did they actually look at these things that really matter, right? Did they adjust for these things that really matter? And so when I say adjust or control for, um, I'll give a clinical example. So with age, for example, right? Let's say we know the older you get, the sicker you typically are and the worse your patient outcomes are. 
But we know that once we control for something called frailty, that's really what matters here. It takes the total association between age and outcomes away because we've all seen the 80 year old triathlete who's just a beast. Age doesn't mean anything in that situation, right? Um, age really does. What's that? Testosterone supplementation may, makes a big difference in that scenario. Very true. But um, you see a lot of like, like really older age athletes who are just amazing and really big inspirations and they're not frail at all. But you can think about, you've seen the 65 year old who's very frail and can barely walk, right? In that case, age makes no difference. And so that's what we've seen in the research is that like when we look at older adults in the emergency department, you know, age makes a big difference until what you can put, until you put frailty into the picture and then age really doesn't dictate anything. It's frailty that dictates everything. Oh, good point. That really narrowed it down into a completely different mindset. And so let's talk, let's go back to triathlon here. So, you know, the PTO is, I'm not sure how they determine PTO points. It's way beyond my scope. We're of not knowledge. either. Okay. No one, there you no go. One does. <laughs> okay. So, but let's assume they have an algorithm, right. And their outcome, and they're trying to standardize how they uh, give points out per courses. Well, what are things we need to look at? Well, the length of the course, right? Sometimes, for example, Chattanooga was just that had a longer swim, as you know, right? 2.4K swim, but it also had the downstream effect of the water. Elevation, wind, road conditions, heat, these are all things that we need to take into account in this algorithm when determining points. Could so you develop an algorithm and submit it to the PTO that makes sense to you? And we'd love to see it. Uh, that's what I do for a living. I build machinery. I know, so you, like, Sam, you give me a call and I'm happy to help out. Oh, cause, cause <laughs> Jackson, I mean, not, I don't know if Jackson's still doing it, but there was a bunch of pros who were in a collective trying to work with the PTO to identify a more pragmatic and sensible way to create points. That's even your grandma could watch the triathlon and understand the event and understand what the points are going to be at the end of it. So, yeah, and that makes sense, right? And like, there are ways to standardize this statistically. Um, and I do, I, we do it all the time in clinical research. And I think what's really important, though, is that the, one thing I really like that you said there, though, is that are getting people like Jackson involved in this, because who knows better that to me, honestly, like the scientists understand a lot, but when you're developing these points, and the people are going to be using these points to determine their livelihood, like, I think that's awesome, they're getting them involved. But there are absolutely statistical methods we can use to use these kind of factors and the nice thing is PTO, I'm sure, has a nice data bank just sitting there waiting, right, with what the course elements are, how yeah, people should. done on the courses. No doubt they do. And so the data is sitting there right for the taking. There's no way we can't do this with statistics. But um, so you know, we're coming back to the topic of like the important variables, like did we control for these things? So in this example, did we control for length of the course? Did we control for elevation when we're giving these points out? And if we can't control for these things statistically, what works much better is, and we can't really do this in this scenario, is we randomize people. And so the reason we randomize and the reason randomization is so powerful, and to, to highlight this, randomization is powerful with a lot of patients. You randomize 15 patients, like, is it really random? Like it's random, but like you're not getting the balance of covariates, which I'll kind of get into in a second. So there's a lot of things, for example, let's say we're talking about the PTO algorithm. Well, there's a lot of things we know we can't get data on or we don't know about genetics. What about racer serum values, right? We can't control for that in this algorithm. But if we randomize patients in a clinical trial or a clinical intervention, then by randomizing them, you make sure there's an equal balance of people with different genetics, different race serums, different et cetera, et cetera. But the randomization only works if you have a lot of people. Mm -hmm. If you randomize a thousand patients, then yeah, it's a better chance we're gonna have equal groups. But if you randomize 20 patients, like what are the odds that these things we don't know about or the things that we really should be adjusting for are really balanced across the groups? Probably not that strong. Yeah, we're seeing that with the PTO points as well. And, you know, whether there's a conspiracy theory that they've got an agenda of who they really want to, you know, start to be in the top percentages, that's up to, you know, that's their thing to sleep with at night. But also, maybe it's just the way it would be pretty much within a couple percent if they didn't manipulate or not manipulate. I don't know. I'm just guessing here. Well, here's the thing I do have to say in clinical research for a, for a clinical prediction model to be valid and usable in clinical research, it has to be transparent and we have to let people know how it's working. Yeah. And so if the PTO wants people to really trust this algorithm, just like we do in clinical research, if I tell you, you know, I have a lot of companies, like for example, um, I'll stay away from this, but there's a lot of companies that have algorithms that choose to not talk about how their algorithms work, how discriminatory the model is, can the model calibrate appropriately across different racers. Um, and that, that just draws doubt when you really understand what that means. So the big thing about science is being transparent, right? And PTO, 
um, as an organization and as a whole, if they're building an algorithm, wouldn't, wouldn't the racers be happier knowing exactly what's going to dictate A, B, and C, and, they'll, and they know there's validity to this algorithm? There's that's, no real benefit to the trans. There's no real benefit to hiding it. That's one than, thing we can all agree on. Absolutely. Every pro athlete that I know for sure that we've talked to would love to have that transparency and love to know a very simple and decisive point system that is going to dictate their salary. But, you know, we have all guidelines written up for this, the tripod guidelines. Um, there's all kinds of guidelines on how to how to report clinical prediction models appropriately, transparently. This work is already done. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not hard to do. It really isn't. Like if you have this skill set, it's not hard to do. It's do companies want to be transparent? And PTO, I would say, is not really super guilty of this. But think about platforms like um, that look Good at life. that are virtual cycling. They have all these <laughs> algorithms, right? And they don't want to share that with you. They don't want you to know. They're going to say you got eighty percent accuracy of this and that, or we can we can estimate your FTP virtually. But at the end of the day, they give us no measure of discrimination. They give us no measure. So discrimination is how well does the model discriminate those who were they were right with and those who they were wrong with. Uh. And then calibration is. How well does the model do against different, I uh, guess, across different types of people, right? So does the algorithm do really good in people like Garrick and, and Nick who are pros? And does it do really bad in people like me who are age groupers? Well, you need model calibration to really understand that. And that's what's really important. And so that's why it's, you'll see a lot of companies choose not, they purposely choose not to give those, um, those metrics of model, model performance. Or they'll just use elite athletes only and then just try to stay away from the numbers they know might skew their numbers in other direction. Yep. Or they might do a subgroup analysis and say, we have the data, but we're only going to do a subgroup of the athletes because we found the model did better only in pro athletes and we'll only report these numbers. Yeah. Right. Okay. okay. So, so that's not a lot of transparency either. But I have nothing to say, honestly. I really don't know much about the PTO. I know nothing about the algorithm or the process. Um, I'm oh, yeah, also we're not speaking dominant. from... They take care of the population of athletes here in, in a good way. So they're our best. They're like friggin' Luke Skywalker. They're like our only hope. So we got to Right. Hope. But all I'm saying is this is something they could do as, a, as an organization to give racers more confidence in the algorithms being promoted and, and just to be more transparent as an organization. And I'm happy to help them do it. Uh, give me an email if you want. Nice. Happy to help you guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put, we'll put you in the show notes with all the info so people can Wikipedia you <laughs> well, i don't have a wikipedia that's for darn sure i ain't oh, big like that i had a big dog yet sam renew <laughs> definitely listens to the show so i'm sure he'll reach out yeah, yeah no I mean, problem happy to help it'd be great to have well, i'm sure odds are let's not discredit them too much is they've got methodologists or some sort of statisticians that they actually are working with to do something too so yeah absolutely could and that's why i speak very cautiously because i don't know anything about the organization but I know very little about the algorithm and I feel like not much has been reported on it. And it's been a common complaint among racers across multiple podcasts. Yeah, valid. So, valid. so that's where I'm coming from. It's more from like an age group perspective. This is what I'm hearing from the pros. The pros want more transparency. And this is actually standard practice in when we build clinical prediction models. Okay, fair. I mean, great point. What's next? So uh, I'm sure you guys have seen this. Uh, this is a classic example is what kind of comparator group do we use? Are they using, are they comparing it to something that really matters, the intervention? And so I always like using the example of water, like the early studies in nutrition uh, would compare things to water. Oh, I think you lost Garrick. He'll be back. The, uh, the early interventions compare things to water, right? So um, if we compare even sugar water to water, well, sugar water is going to look amazing. Imagine <laughs> comparing something like a real nutritional supplement that's designed for pros I guess I'm like water or against, <laughs> uh, you know, something that has magnesium and all these, um, you know, sodium and all these things we need. And they just compare it to sugar water. Like this is what this research used to look like. And I'm not super sure what it looks like now, but the point of this is, is like, are we comparing our intervention to something that really makes sense to the standard of, I would call it in research, the standard of care, but here we would call it the standard of practice, right. Or the standard of racing. So an example I'll use is, you know, we have this brand new TT bike. It's beautiful. I'm not going to give a brand name or nothing. It doesn't even matter because for the example, we have this beautiful TT bike and we're going to compare it to an old road bike from the nineties. Well, of course the TT bike's going to look amazing. Yeah. Like you didn't have a good comparator there. Right. Or if you compare something like, you know, the worst supplement for uh, nutrition, you compare it against water. Of course it's going to look amazing. Are you comparing us sugar water? Yeah. We get the glucose from sugar water, but we don't get the calories we need as much calories. We don't get the, the sodium, all the electrolytes we need. It's not isotonic. Like 
you know, there's a lot of things to consider. So I always say to people when they're looking at comparator groups, like, did we actually look at something that was fair to compare it against? Yeah. I mean, would infinite mud be a great alternative protein thing or would actual mud? I mean, there's a great opportunity there. <laughs> what a troll. Oh. But yeah, so like that's that's another thing I've noticed is like you'll see um, often in clinical research, we'll compare to standard practice. So we have a new intervention in the eMERGE and we're going to compare to what's actually happening in eMERGE. The eMERGE, like, the eMERGE ED, you got it. So uh, if we're in the ED and uh, we're comparing to standard practice, well, that makes sense because that's what's actually happening in real life. Does this make a difference compared to what's actually happening in real life? What else, like, you know, I and mean, that's what we do in clinical research, but people don't run for 20 kilometers on just water or just sugar water. That's not realistic. That's not a standard of practice in triathlon. Not I've that I know it. of. Well, you do it, man. You go, <laughs> I'm sure you felt like crap. 42 kilometers on Uno Sip of Agua. Oh my God. You're a beast. No, I'm not, but I was thirsty afterwards. Let's <laughs> just say that. Okay. So comparison that's huge oops sorry just getting a call from the dude who ran that marathon with me that day yeah funny <laughs> um so where were we yeah talking about dirt versus actual nutrition and how can we as consumers pay attention to those you know things that are going to be put right in front of us that we got to make a decision on i like the term used earlier commonsensical does it yes. have commonsensical does it make sense right does looking at this does looking at this comparison make sense right so if we're looking at things like, you know, like the example we use of the TT bike versus the 90s bike, like anyone reading a study would be like, what the heck is that? There would be no yeah. face validity there. But if they were comparing this new developed TT bike and then maybe this new frame design and they're comparing it to the sister model, that would make sense, right? Because that's what people might be racing on of that brand, right? Mm -hmm. So we improved on our brand or our old psych or our old bike by 15%. Well, I would, I would, I would listen to that, but I wouldn't listen to your comparison against, yeah, direct you know, comparison. Lance Armstrong's road bike from the eighties. Well, put his legs on there and we'll buy it. Exactly. So, uh, two more things we're going to be talking about. The one is going to be study protocols. So, um, it's very interesting that we have a lot of trials. Um, you know, we have a lot of trials in endurance research, but very little protocols published and that's not unique to endurance research. So I don't want to slam endurance research in any way because that actually happens in all trials. It's standard of practice though, to publish protocols before you do a paper. So if I'm going to run a clinical trial and I want to do A, B, C, and D, I should publish this and put this forward in advance in a journal. And they'll, the journals will publish this. We, they encourage you to, to, smoke, to uh, well, yeah, old journals that only so people do people can challenge it. And then they can be like, whoa, 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 that's going to skew this. Why are you doing that? Well, here's why we really care is it holds researchers accountable. So, you know, if we have, um, you know, we have clinical and health trials and we have these protocols in place, then you as a researcher can't really change too much from what you plan to do initially, right? Because you've already said, hey, 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 you're gonna do this hypothesis and you're gonna look at this analysis. You can't skew too far from that. Otherwise, as researchers, we're gonna, we're gonna call question, right? Yeah. And so that's why protocols are so important. And that's the same in, in, in endurance research, right? So if there's no protocol, then the studies are at a higher risk for reporting what they want to report. And that's called reporting bias. So they'll report what they want to rather than what they intended to. So for example, they may have collected data on you know, racer important outcomes, like racing speed, but that wasn't significant. So they chose not to report on it, but they did something looking at lactate and that was significant. So they chose to report on that. Well, if you have a protocol in place, any scientist reading that's going to be like, yo, 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 you, you said from advance Wait, that you're going to be reporting That's on. trademarked. You cannot yo, yo, yo on this podcast. We have to pay Sam Long $800 every time someone yo, yo, yo's. Damn oh, it, I just, man. I owe him again. Damn, I didn't even think about that. I was just talking a game, but sorry, Sam. <laughs> but he was uh, quoting someone else, so is it still... Nope. Uh, it's just like if you start singing a Celine Dion song. It's anywhere, over. It's Canada, over from there, stat. a million dollars. <laughs> yep. But, uh, you know, if they have racer important outcomes and they, they you know, it's not significant, then they're going to report the stuff that's, that choose to report. Well, then that's selective reporting and it's going to skew, it's going to act, it's going to look like they never even cared about racing speed. When we know that's not the case, that's what they intended to look at in the first place. And then they're choosing not to report those insignificant results. So let's say there's only three studies. Well, if two of the studies are, uh, let's say one study is significant, one's not significant, and the third one would show non-significance. Well, now we think it's 50-50 because they chose not to report on that. And that skews the whole body of literature. Hey man, innocence by omission. 
it's all right. I'm still, I'm not guilty. Plead the fifth. <laughs> so that's the nice thing about protocols is it holds researchers accountable and it, and it, it makes sure that we're doing what we should be doing, what we set out to do, right? We're not, we're not jumping skew too much. Um, so for example, we, when we randomize clinical in clinical trials, we can analyze data um, like uh, as to the group you were in. So we can say, I don't care if you dropped out of the group. I don't care if you switched groups. If you started in group A, we're going we're gonna to analyze you as though you were group A. And then there's another way to analyze it where if you switch groups, we're going to count you in the other group. Well, a lot of times, you know, we'll say initially we're going to count them as, uh, you know, intention to treat, which is when we're going to treat them in the group that we said they're going to stay in. But, you know, maybe that result doesn't show as promising as we like. So now we're going to report, you know, per protocol or, or whatever we choose to report, which is where we're going to count them in the group that they switch to. Mm. Um, you know, if we have a protocol in place, the researcher can't make that decision after the fact. You know, we can't make post hoc decisions about the research and the statistics we do. It just invalidates everything we do. We, we set out with the hypothesis. We set out with the sample size. We set out with our analyses initially for a reason. Let's stick with it no matter what. So I just had an interesting thought too. You know, you you are just so hard on for all these protocols right now. You're going through it. You're like in it. You're the methodologist king. So I wonder if we brought you back on in 20 years after you've gone through all this other stuff, maybe you got hired by a milk company and uh, <laughs> they're like, look, man, we got to sell a bunch of milk. You're like, I know how to use my powers for evil. <laughs> right. Like the, the, that's the thing is like, is like a lot of times, you know, the sad thing is a lot of scientists get put in a place and this is very true in endurance as it is in clinical research. Like sometimes we, we do work and we're limited by what we can publish. Yeah. So if let's think about it this way, if you're doing, I'm not getting any names, let's say you're working for a pharmaceutical company, you're looking at a new dementia drug and you find that the dementia drug, you're the scientist, the lead scientist for whatever company this is, and you do this big trial and you find this dementia drug makes no difference. You think they're going to let you publish that? Not a chance in hell. Like that well, is does, not ever seeing the light of day. How does Fauci get away with going on the news and saying all the crap he does? I don't even know. I don't follow that stuff very much, to be honest. I don't either. I just know that he's like, when you're day, more of a like, politician, is... when you become more of a politician, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> That's true. I guess medically you are biased based on who's paying. <laughs> well, that's the case. That's the case in anything in life, right? Conflicts of interest. And that leads us right to our next topic of sponsorship, right? Like no matter the case, the scenario, the person, we all have conflicts of interest. I have conflicts of interest. We all do. You have conflicts of interest with your sponsors. I have conflicts oh. of interest with my funding agencies. We all I, do. I got none. Zero, eh? No I, conf <laughs> I conflict with zero interests of anybody else. No competing risks, he says. But it's funny because, you know, like we always got to look at things like who is developing who's leading these trials and what is the interest that they have. So for example, if I'm a researcher and I have stock in a company and I'm going to like, and I'm publishing on this paper, like, of course I'm going to have a conflict of interest or I have a relationship with these companies in some way. So it's always really important to look at. Um, and these should always be declared. Actually. That's one thing I really want to talk about is having a conflict of interest is not a problem. A lot of people have conflicts of interest. Be open about it. Be transparent about it yeah. because when you're open and transparent about conflicts of interest, people are more likely to trust you. Right. And so like there are conflicts of interest where, you know, I've published a, a study and it came out of a hospital that I had worked for. Well, I was a nurse in that emerge. So that might act as a conflict of interest to me because we're the recruiting emerge. In the, the emerge. Exactly. If I'm a nurse in the emerge and we're recruiting from the exact department that I work from, that could potentially be a conflict of interest. It may not be. It may have no influence at all. But as a researcher, I want people to know that this is something to consider. And I want to be as open and transparent as possible about that. That's like that's key, as I would say, like there are going to be conflicts of interest that happens in life. Be open, honest and transparent about them. And then people will trust the research that you do more. You're a genuine person. You're a genuine researcher. You're coming. If we find out about conflicts of interest after the fact, or let's say a journal, you publish in a journal and they're like, whoa, like you work for this company. Like that's a big deal. And you didn't declare your conflict of interest. They're going to come for you. <laughs> you in some trouble. That's right. It, it really spurred off a, a side tangent for me to say, Degrity Farms sell integrity weed <laughs> i lost my i lost all the context there <laughs> the south south park stan marcy's like he's trying to sell this like really good wholesome weed and it's called integrity so you gotta well, have if he ain't from bc he ain't selling anything too wholesome. integrity my friends <laughs> that's what it all goes back to for me um i want to see 
you know, a company that I need to do some research on too, is that new Boa Blast one. I've been seeing them everywhere since world champ. It's like a little aerosol spray can of salt that just salt. You can salt someone in the eyes. You can salt them in the mouth, whatever you want. What's the purpose of this? Just to get salt real fast and in a hurry, instead of carrying around a pill or whatever. It's just like, you can salt like hairspray. It looks like that. I, I would understand if it was like sublingual, like you're putting it under the tongue and it's absolving under the tongue, but I don't know anything about is. the product at all. Anyways, there's, that's like any new company that's coming out. I've got all the skepticism as well. Obviously I haven't been paying attention like you in terms of the research protocols and I've just probably. And honestly, I have it myself. Like I don't look too much into endurance research. What I, where I come from and the, the background that I come from is more that I came into this as a new racer. And I wanted to start looking at the evidence as a scientist. And I was just like blown away that what is being hyped, what is being marketed and so strongly is coming from such little data. And that's not the case for all interventions at all. Like there's some interventions that are beasts. They're strong. They have good effect sizes, good sample sizes. Well, who's that? Good. Let's, let's laud some of the winners out there who are doing it right. Who, who have you noticed who's doing it right? Anyone off the top of your head? can't give you any off the top of my head and I wouldn't give any names anyway. Uh, Come like, on. Just like I, no, just like I don't talk more about some, I'm not going to talk good about some. <laughs> I'm not saying nothing, but like I, I see a lot of it. I would say of the domains, nutrition research um, tends to be the nutrition research tends to be of the endurance sport research, the most controlled and valid because they, they can do amazing things where they can like add a little bit of salt in the clinical trial and they can get a lot of patients for nutrition studies because if you go to age groupers or even triathletes and say, we're going to give you free supplement, free stuff, all, and, and they can randomize it, you don't even know what you're getting, then all you're really giving them back is, you know, how it made you feel and, and did, did it really improve your endurance? And you don't even know what you're getting. You could be totally getting a placebo. So I, I think that endurance of endurance research, the nutrition endurance research is probably some of the strongest and the intervention based. So like, does this new wheel work? Does this new way to improve aerodynamics work? Oh, like these the interventions, aspect those the tend to be, right? And they're the biggest money makers too, because let's be real, there's not a lot of money in nutrition. Not right? unless, like, yeah, there's probably not as much. We've seen companies come and go because they've partnered with big companies like Ironman and they think they're going to just sell their shorts off and it just doesn't happen. And sometimes they do. Like there's some product, I just like, you know, nutrition, if you're buying a $30, $40 powder versus a $3,000 set of wheels, like, Where's yeah. the big investment for the company in the wheels, right? Yeah. So I don't have any more topics. I could go on all day about this, but you know, the, to highlight the key things is that you know, just have some commonsensical. Have uh, have some look at yes. the face validity. Does it make sense? Um, you know, if we're looking at sample sizes, making sure that do they have enough? Did they do a power analysis? And as a consumer, you're probably not going to care about that. But did they have 15 patients? That you should care about, right? Yeah. And uh, you know what kind of outcomes are they looking at? Did they look at, did they bunch outcomes together? Did they look at surrogate outcomes where we do, we, you know, where we're using a substitute outcome. Does that make sense? Does the composite outcome make sense? Did they clump things together appropriately? Did they use appropriate surrogates? Um, looking at things like, did they randomize? Like, you know, I'm, I love to see, I'm very, I have to say a lot of endurance studies, they will randomize, but they'll randomize 15 patients. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like does, that does, randomization doesn't even work with 15 patients. Like, in that case, you should still be using statistical methods to adjust and control because like, what are you going to do with 15 patients and what inference can you really draw? So did they randomize? And if they didn't randomize with enough patients, did they use the appropriate methods or did they at least say we controlled for age, gender, you know, course length, whatever's important to the racer. And then finally, I'd say, you know, looking at comparator groups, um, just, did they compare it to a good group? Does it make sense? Is this something that they should be comparing this intervention to? Uh, did they study, did they publish a study protocol? And oftentimes in a study, the thing is, if you ever publish a study protocol, they'll link the protocol right in the study. Yeah. So if I'm ever reading a study, they'll say, we published a protocol in this journal and it's right here for you to see, because they want to be showing you, look, we were as valid as we could be. So did they publish a protocol? And if they did, did they deviate a lot from that protocol? Because you'll still see protocols where that we published just, a protocol. Sometimes though, it's a lot of, it's a lot of reading. There's but that's not your job at the end of the day as a consumer. Ooh. And that's where it gets difficult, right? And as a racer, you're already busy. You're exhausted. You're racing your ass off out there. You don't have time to come back and read these studies, right? Yeah. So, all you have time for is like, did Jan Ferdino tell me I need these? Was Lucy Charles wearing these when she won Kona? That's all I care about. That's, that's what a lot of the consumers care about, right? right? And that's, that's why marketing... Selling. 
but that's why sponsorship is so powerful and so strong in endurance sport because they're so they can't a lot of endurance sport they can't justify the means with with data so how can they do it they can justify it with case examples like you said right Ooh. and like garrick said we all become a case example i like that comparison they can't prove it enough with science so they just pay people a lot of money to say it oh that's the clutch cliffhanger i like it Yep. So have some common sense, I'd say. And, uh, you know, it's not your job to be a methodologist, but rather I just kind of wanted to highlight some things that as a, from a methodological perspective, like these are things that we need to be looking at. And there's a lot more out there. We can only cover so much in the time we have. Yeah. But, you know, these are some big things that I've noticed in the endurance research. And some of it's specific. I would say the sample sizes are pretty specific to endurance research as where the others are common in a lot of domains of research. But like seeing sample sizes of like 15 and the claims that come out of them and the sample sizes of even like even a sample size of 50, like, you know, you got to go on, you got to become part of slow twitch because they just publish all kinds of real life upside down stuff that we don't pay attention to until someone's bitching about it. So I think you should, Maybe I will. you should reach out to slow twitch, write an article for that too, because, and I think eventually, you know, site companies that are not really you give you can give like your scale create your own scale of authenticity to how valid is this is this yeah. intervention give a validity validity scale for a company out of you know 10 and then you could say x company scores a nine here's why so i think that'd be sweet for like your own segment on slow twitch or something well i'm not gonna lie i'm pretty much drowned with my own research i don't know if i have time for all that but <laughs> you probably won't have any time look i'm an ideas guy i'm not an execution guy okay man i like it <laughs> um but we did lose garrick his internet was going in and out it looks like he texted me and said it's raining in michigan so the at&t uh, doesn't work in the rain yeah it's downpouring here too on the canadian border side so nice well i had i'm here in utah and it hasn't rained in about uh i don't know a couple months maybe longer it's just needs to rain so it's pretty surreal living without rain this this long um, but anyways Bottom line is I think the data, the research, the point of view, your perspective as a methodologist, methodologist is impactful. I think we all kind of need to be very aware, especially let's think about this. You know, I'm a representative of a bunch of brands. Um, our team is, you know, so mm -hmm. we are part of promoting products. Obviously, when we look at a, a sponsor or a product we want to promote, this is, goes to your last point, conf conflicts of interest could be based on belief, validity of the product. You know, we don't bring on products as a team that we don't actually get to use ahead of time um, and find value in, whether it's good science research, like CBD for one of them. Um, mm -hmm. CBD is everywhere, there, everywhere. Anyone can make it sell. It's not even regulated heavily in the US. But with the partners that we have, we make sure, oh, look at the resume of the founder. Look at her background, the development, the procedures, they own the facility. We kind of make sure we do our research as right. brand ambassadors to make sure that what we are telling our listeners and fans, I mean, the ones we do have to use or why, why we support what we support, um, there's validity there. So I think that for us to pay attention to some of these studies is going to be very impactful because if, if you are given hundreds of thousands of dollars to represent a brand and a company. And this is why really extensively rich athletes have people doing all checks and balances and having, you know, PR people is because these things can get you in trouble. If you make a claim about something mm -hmm. and this is on social media all the time and Instagram is finally starting to crack down. A lot of it is a lot of the stuff I say um, are considered ads. And now you have to do paid partnerships when you do say those things about right. companies. So truth and truth and marketing, truth and sponsorships. Yeah. As pro athletes, we're doing what we can more and more to let our followers know, like these guys actually sponsor me too. I get free product, but most of the stuff, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the stuff we have, we would buy anyways. Um, right. And that's, and that's, that gives you that confidence to promote it. Right. Yeah. So like the last thing I'll say is to the age grouper, like, a lot of the stuff we've talked about really matters at the elite level, like making sure these studies matter. Like, and you have people that do this, like, this is not your job as a racer, but as an age grouper, don't take the research so seriously. Like yeah. it's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good research out there, but a, most of the research in this domain is very gimmicky and very um, low, low risk of bias. We say when we do systematic reviews, we rate things on high risk of bias, low risk of bias, a lot of high risk of bias studies in um, endurance and endurance research in general. So, you know, don't take the research so seriously, go up a good time. Don't stress it. 
you know, yeah, go race, go have a good time. Try it on your own and then see if it works. Um, and then invest all your money into it, into that $10,000 bike, you know, Best you job. got it. <laughs> so, but, yeah, but we want to see you out there racing. We want to see you loving the sport. Um, thanks for obviously reaching out to us. I love it when we have people who stumble upon us, they find a valid reason to share their expertise and it it's relevant to what we do. So thank you very much for putting, putting your hand out and saying, I want to come on the show. We've got some great stuff to talk about. And I believe we accomplished that. So thank you so much for coming on. Garrett would say the same if he was here and yeah, Jackson, no problem. Jackson would probably be in the intro and we'll be explaining all the like really basic stuff to him. So he kind of understands what just happened. No problem, but I'm glad I could come on and I appreciate your time. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, if there's anything else you want to come on in the future, if you see a lot of hand grenades going off and we need to talk about them, we can do a segment on it again. So thanks again. We'll talk soon. Okay. A breeze. Sounds good. Talk soon, buddy. I got ish to do flying through the sky in my parachute dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise on a one-man mission trying to see it through.